Lord saw fit to put a little more bass in my voice this morning. Um, I feel fine, but as I've heard Tommy say, I have that frog in my throat. Um, it jumped from his to mine at some point. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 31. The plan is to spend two weeks here in Genesis chapter 31. Um, this week, we'll look at the first 21 verses. Next week, I'll be out of town, and then, Lord willing, um, I'll come back on the 14th, and we'll conclude this chapter. Tommy will be preaching next week. So what we have here in Genesis 31 is Jacob's departure from Padan Aram. The first 21 verses conclude with Jacob leaving Padan Aram, and then in verses 22 through 55, we'll see Laban in pursuit of Jacob. He will catch up to him. They'll have an intense exchange, and then they will officially part ways. So as we consider Jacob's flight from Padanaram, it's interesting that he leaves in similar fashion to which he came. When he left Canaan, if you recall, when he left his homeland, he was fleeing from his brother's murderous rage. As you know, he deceived his brother, he stole his blessing, and subsequently he fled from his brother's wrath. And now, as we'll see this morning, Jacob will flee from Laban, because Laban no longer views him favorably. But Jacob won't just leave, he will trick Laban, as we'll see in our text here. He doesn't tell Laban he's leaving, instead he leaves deceptively. And while Jacob will not be the one stealing from his family this time, we will see his wife, Rachel, stealing her father's household gods. So while Jacob fled to Laban because of deception and because of theft, his departure will be accompanied by deception and theft. So although we will still see remnants of Jacob's old ways, we will also see that things are markedly different this time around. This is 20 years, 20 years have passed. And as Richard Belcher Jr. acknowledges in his Genesis commentary, we see Jacob's affirmation, I'm sorry, we see Jacob's transformation as we see him attribute his wealth to God. We see him actively leading his family, whereas before in just the last chapter, we saw him passively, as the passive husband, acting passively with his wives, his wives telling him what to do. And we also see his transformation in that he promptly obeys God. He does not delay in in his obedience. He does what the Lord commands. So we have a transformed man, not a perfect man, because he will flee. He took flight from Canaan because of Esau, his brother. Now he'll take flight from Padan Aram because of his uncle. So transformation, yes, but we still see Jacob seeking to avoid conflict. Yet as we'll see next week and in the weeks to come, or in the next time that I'm back here and in the weeks to come, Jacob will not be able to avoid that which he seeks to get away from. He avoids conflict, but he will eventually have to face it. Laban will catch up to him. In chapters 32 and 33, Esau, he will finally have to face Esau. Jacob sought to avoid this conflict rather than confront it head on, but yet he will be faced with it eventually. Unfortunately, however, he will spend many years living in fear. But to reiterate, We must not see Jacob as the same man who fled from his brother and came to Padan Aram. 
This time, Jacob is a transformed man, but his transformation, like ours, is a gradual process that leads him to utterly depend upon the Lord. So as noted earlier, we're going to be in um, Genesis chapter 31, we'll be in verses 1 through 21. Um, In your worship guide, you'll see I've divided this chapter or this section into three divisions here just to help us get a flow of the the passage. In verses 1 through 3, we see Jacob's motive for going home. Laban and his sons, they turn against him. They begin to turn against him. Laban's sons will view him with suspicion. Laban no longer sees Jacob favorably. And then we also see that the Lord commands him to go home. Then in verses 4 through 16, we see Jacob's dialogue with his wives. He recounts the events that have taken place along with God's call to leave. And both Rachel and Leah, they agree to go with him. And then to round out this section in verses 17 through 21, we see Jacob leaving Padan Aram. He follows God's command, yet he does so in an ungodly manner. So as we walk through this passage, what we're going to do, we're going to stop and we're going to draw out implications along the way. Sometimes we walk through the passage and we look at the implications afterwards. This time we're going to draw out the implications as we go. And as we do so, we will be reminded of the great blessing that it is that we have the complete revelation of God right here. Such a blessing that we have God's word. We'll also be reminded that scripture interprets our experience, not the other way around. And finally, we'll conclude with Christ who did not flee who did not take flight when things got difficult. He stayed the course and willingly died a criminal's death on the cross. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read through our passage and then we'll pray for the Lord's help. Genesis 31 verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered him and said, 
Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. This is God's word. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we come before your throne as those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until that day when we acquire possession of it. And it'll all be to the praise of Christ's glory. I pray that you will help us to see the glory of Christ this very day. Guard us against all forms of unbelief. I also pray for our brother Joe Owen as he travels throughout Latin America. Continue to use him to proclaim the glory of Christ. Guard him against all sorts of temptations. I pray that you would raise up many men to shoulder that load that he carries. And we know his heart is burdened for the church in Latin America. Help us as we partner with him. Oh, that we would not waste these opportunities, but that we would be wise and we would steward our resources well. I also pray for the stewards who will be going to Chile. I pray for them in these days as they prepare. You prepare their hearts. You prepare the people whom they will be teaching. Pray that we would raise the support needed to send them well. And Father, I do pray for more doors to open and more laborers to go. And if it be your will, that there might be some here this very morning who will go. Who will move to another country to take that which you have entrusted us with. They would go to another country to proclaim the glory of Christ. So stir up within us, O oh God, a hunger and a desire to make Christ's glory known. But I pray that we would also not neglect our neighbors that are right here in Southeast Houston. So I pray that our confidence in Christ would be renewed this morning. 
I pray that we would see the glory of Christ as we contrast Christ with Jacob. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So before we get to Genesis 31, it'll be helpful for us to consider what's taken place since Jacob arrived in Padan Aram. Or more importantly, what Jacob has gained during the last 20 years. Jacob attained a wife. Well, actually, he attained two wives and two maidservants. And these women give birth to 11 sons and one daughter. So not only has Jacob attained a large family, but he's also attained material wealth to support his large family. And now that both his family and his wealth have increased, it's time to go home. But in the midst of Jacob's prosperity, Laban and his sons are suspicious of him because the deal that Laban made with Jacob was supposed to work out in Laban's favor. It's supposed to be advantageous to him, but it was advantageous to Jacob alone, not to Laban. So Laban and his sons are not only suspicious, they're envious. And that's how Genesis 31 begins. Look at verse one. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. So we don't know how Jacob heard this. We've actually seen this on multiple occasions. We saw um, Jacob's mother heard about Esau's murderous rage as his threats were being breathed out. Now here we see Jacob, he's overheard that Laban's sons are essentially resentful of Jacob. They're resentful of Jacob's prosperity. See, Jacob, if you recall, he's made his wealth, he's made his, his living from Laban's flock. If you recall from last week, Jacob made a deal with Laban. He would take the abnormally colored livestock from Laban's flock, and these would be his wages. And that deal was actually favorable to Laban, as the abnormally colored livestock would typically make up about 20% of the flock. But as we saw last week, and as we're reminded here, this deal was actually lopsided against Laban. For it was the abnormally colored livestock that multiplied greatly. And so as a result, Jacob's wealth has increased greatly. And now Laban's sons, they're resentful. They see Jacob, their brother-in-law, receiving the lion's share of their inheritance. As Laban has taken advantage of Jacob on multiple occasions, we also see that Laban no longer views Jacob favorably. The relationship here has changed. Yes, Laban has not been a very good father-in-law. He's taken advantage of Jacob multiple times. He's changed his wages multiple times. But now, he no longer sees Jacob as a valuable asset. Previously, he kept Jacob close albeit through deceptive means, because Jacob caused him to prosper. However, Jacob is now the one prospering, seemingly at Laban's expense. But as we will see in a few minutes, Jacob has been honest in all of his dealings with Laban. And besides, it's God who actually prospers Jacob. So those are the circumstances here. Jacob has prospered greatly. Laban and his sons, they're resentful. And in the midst of these circumstances, 
the Lord speaks to Jacob and commands him to go home. In verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. It was here in Haran where the Lord called Abraham to leave and to go to the promised land. That was almost 150 years earlier. Genesis 12, about, 150, about 145 years earlier. And then now in the same place, the Lord calls Jacob to leave and to go back to the promised land. Things are different this time around, however. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham to leave, God was calling him to leave his homeland, to leave his family, to leave his kindred. Now God is calling Jacob to return to his homeland, to return to his family, to return to his kindred. You see, the homeland has changed. Abraham's homeland prior to Genesis 12 was Haran. Now their family's homeland is Canaan, the promised land. And so as we look back here in verse 3, we see God speaking to Jacob, telling him to return to the land of your fathers, basically to leave Haran, to go home. And then as he says at the end of verse 3, and I will be with you. These are precious words. Such a precious promise that, makes, that God makes to his people. He promises to be with his people. But as we think about these words to Jacob, the last time God spoke to Jacob, he promised to be with Jacob. And through it all, he has been with Jacob. He's blessed Jacob through many trials, through suffering. But nonetheless, he's blessed him. And throughout these 20 years, he has been with him. So we know that Jacob has spent 20 years in Haran because down in verse 38, he says, I've, these 20 years I've been with you when he's talking to Laban. So when we think about verse 3 in relation to the last time that God spoke to him, do you know how long it's been? 20 years. When Jacob was on his way to Laban, God appeared to him in a dream. And he spoke to him. He promised to be with Jacob and to bring him back home. And now it's been 20 years. And God once again reveals himself to Jacob and he calls Jacob to leave, to go home. So let's just put this in perspective for a moment. Yes, God appeared to Jacob and spoke directly to him. That was 20 years ago. It's not like Jacob spoke to the patriarchs every day or even every year. It's been decades since God spoke to Jacob. That right there should remind us of how good we have it. Living on this side of the cross, having the full revelation of God in our hands or even in our pockets, we are blessed to have such easy access to the word of God. Jacob did not have such access. Jacob received direct revelation from God, yes, but remember, direct revelation was extremely rare in his days. It was extremely rare even in the days of the prophets. There were seasons of famine with no revelation from God, and we can feel that tension if we were to go to 1 Samuel. What we would see there in chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. 
And that describes the days of the patriarchs as well. God only spoke to Abraham a handful of times. Same goes for Isaac and Jacob. And while God spoke directly to these men, God still speaks today. As we learn from Hebrews 1, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Yes, God still speaks today. And you and I have access to God's word any time of the day. God speaks to us through his word. The office of prophet has discontinued in Christ. And now we have a better word. Ken Jones, some of you may know that name. I like what he says here. There is no new revelation apart from Christ. He is the prophet that has come as the fulfillment of the long-awaited promises. As the Son of God, Jesus not only declared the Word of God, but manifested God to us as the Word of God in the flesh. What more do we need than what God has declared and manifested through His Son? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses told the people of God that a greater prophet would come after him. This, this prophet would come and speak the very words of God. And now that he has come, now that Christ has come, we need not look for another word. For we have the full revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And today, God's word has been preserved. And here in our nation, where you and I live, we have unfettered access to the word of God. Therefore, we should not long for God to speak to us through visions and through dreams or through an audible voice. Besides, would you rather wait 20 years for God to speak to you? Sometimes we look for God to speak to us like he spoke to Jacob. And you might even say at times, you might have said this, you might have said this recently, if God would only speak to me in an audible voice, then I will believe in him. But you wouldn't believe in God if he spoke audibly to you. If you wouldn't believe, if you won't believe what was written, what God has spoken through the prophets and the apostles, you won't believe if you hear an audible voice from heaven. Others of you might say, if only God would speak to me or give me a sign, then I'll know what to do. But let me tell you this. It's a waste of your time to look around for a sign, to wait to hear the audible voice of God, for God has spoken, and he has spoken right here in his holy word. Yes, you need to depend upon the spirit of God to illuminate his truth to, uh, to you. We all need to sit under teachers as well, but God has spoken. And he has spoken that which is sufficient for a life of faith and practice. Therefore, you need not look for any other revelation from God. So with that in mind, I want to summarize what we've seen thus far, and then we'll move into the next section. So far, we've seen Jacob's motives for leaving Padan Aram. Laban and his sons are no longer viewing him with favor, and God has called him to leave that right there should be enough. God has called him, commanded him to leave, and then he will go as we'll see. But before he goes, we're going to see him call for his wives. He's going to recount to them what has transpired. 
In verse four, we see Jacob calling for his wives to come and into the field to meet him. This would have been the best place for him to speak to them. Um, no one could listen in. I've been reading a little bit on spycraft, uh, just on the side. And um, not that I'm thinking about being a spy or anything like that. But there were no, no technology existed here for someone to listen in. They couldn't have some long-range um, microphones or something to be able to hear Jacob was, was talked about. But if Jacob was in his tent or near it, we see over and over that people do listen in. We see that that has happened. So now Jacob's out in the middle of the field with his wives. They can see anybody coming from a distance, and he has this conversation with them. And he says in verse 5, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. So this goes along with what he saw, what we read in verse 2. Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And now he tells his wives the same thing. But then he says at the end of verse 5, but the God of my father has been with me. That was the promise God made to Jacob before he came to Padan Aram. God promised to be with Jacob. And now we see Jacob acknowledging God's presence with him. Although Laban did not look upon him with favor anymore, that's okay. Because Jacob has the favor of God. Jacob knows that he served Laban all these years with integrity. And he also knows that it is God who's prospered him. It's God who has protected him. In verse 6, Jacob references his faithful service to Laban. He served him all these years with strength, with all his strength. He's given himself to Laban. Yet as we see in verse 7, Laban has cheated him and changed his wages 10 times. We don't know all the details here, but there's a pattern of Laban changing the wages for his own advantage. We saw that on Jacob's wedding night. Oh, hey, you've actually now got to work another seven years if you want to marry this one. And then we also, we can, we can draw from this that most likely what happened is Laban changing the terms anytime he saw the deal not working out in his favor. Yet, at the end of verse 7, we see that God did not permit Laban to harm him. God has protected him all these years. He's prospered Jacob through it all. And that's the report Jacob gives in verse 8. When Laban said, the spotted shall be your wages, then the flock bore spotted. But if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then the flock bore striped. So as we put this together, it looks like Laban observed what was taking place. He sees what's taking place among the flock. When the flock bore striped, he wanted to keep them for himself. So he told Jacob he could have the spotted. But then what would happen, the flock would begin to, bore, to bear spotted. And so you can just imagine the frustration that, that, that this caused Laban. I mean, it's like the man who's trading stocks, and every time he buys, buys a blue chip stock, it just plummets. And that's what happens to Laban, except he's attempting to deceive and take advantage of Jacob. So when the deal turns in Jacob's favor, he changes the agreement to be in his favor. Yet, it every time miraculously works out in Jacob's favor. Flock is bearing stripes, so Laban says you can have the spotted. And then what happens? The flock starts bearing spotted. Okay, well now you can have the, the, the striped. Now the flock starts bearing striped. 
You can just imagine the frustration that this caused him. And to help us understand what's actually happening here, we have a behind-the-scenes look. Jacob has a heavenly perspective. He says in verse 9, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Jacob acknowledges God's hand in all of this. And as we see here, the livestock that belongs to Laban seems to be dwindling, while Jacob's is increasing greatly. And this is all according to God's plan. So a good question for us to ask here is, how does Jacob know this? How does he know that God has taken away from Laban's flock and given them to him? Does he discern this on his own, or was this revealed to him? Well, if you said it was revealed to him, then you are correct, for this truth was revealed to Jacob in a dream. Jacob had a dream in which he saw the goats mating in the midst of the dream. As we see in verse 11, the angel of God spoke to him. So we see the angel of God said to me in the dream, this is either an angel speaking for God, as some, or as some commentators believe, this is God speaking. But regardless of how you interpret the angel of God, this is a word from God. And it is the word of God that, it, that will interpret Jacob's experience. So the word of God, what was revealed to him, will interpret what he has just seen. But before we look at how God's word interprets Jacob's experience, let me just point out that there's an important lesson for us to learn here when it comes to experience. You see, we live in a day where experience has been elevated as, in some people's minds, an ultimate authority. Sadly, for many of us, when our experience becomes that ultimate authority, we lean on our experience to tell us what to do. To the, the, it, we lean on our experience to tell us who we are. And so this elevation of experience has actually infiltrated the church, and this happened a while back. 18th, 19th century, German, uh, some liberal German theologians would bring this in. If you were to do any Baptist history during the 20th century, you'll see that this is, was, was prominent in the life of Baptist churches and in seminaries. Many men were teaching and preaching who believed that truth was, is, is experiential. They believed that truth was derived through experience and then they used the scriptures to verify their experience. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal here? Why would I stop in the middle of this to discuss this? Well, here's the big deal. Here's why this is a big deal. The elevation of experience leads men and women to throw out scriptures when those scriptures don't line up with one's experience. That's what happened in the 20th century, and it's still happening today. I mean, just think about the culture in which we live. What if your experience proves that gender is nothing more than a social construct, and you've based this upon your experience that you're no longer male or female? And then you go to the scriptures, you go early on to Genesis 1, and what do you see? God made them what? God made man male and female. 
but you don't believe in gender because your experience is your primary means of discovering truth. So what do you do? You throw out that part of scripture. So you get rid of anything that pertains to gender in the scriptures. And you could do that with anything. I mean, do you see the danger here? I hope you do. I hope you understand how how dangerous it is for us to elevate our experience over and above the word of God. Well, what we have here in this passage actually helps us, helps steer us when it comes to experience. Jacob, for instance, experienced the multiplication of his livestock. And then God comes to him in a dream and interprets that experience for him. He was not left to his own devices to interpret what God was doing. In fact, it would have been, I mean, just imagine how unbelievable it would have been to see that any time Laban changed the deal, it seemed to work out in Jacob's favor. And so as Jacob sees that, let's say that his experience is how he interpreted this. He might say that his flock multiplied because of the means he employed. He might say it was the prenatal impressions. We saw that last week, that that was why this happened. But as we're reminded in this passage, it was God who saw what Laban was doing to Jacob. And it was God who took away the livestock of Laban and gave it to Jacob. You see, it's imperative that we interpret all of life through the scriptures and that we let scripture stand as the ultimate authority that it is. Yeah, your experiences, they're real, they happen, but your experiences are limited. Your experiences are not infallible. Even your memory of your experiences is limited. I mean, just think about, I mean, how many of you have sat around and told a story about something that happened 30 years ago and you actually find that you don't remember much of it? Is that gonna be your ultimate authority, you, your experience, or is it going to be God's spoken word, which is infallible and inerrant? The Bible is truth. And we experience the truth of the Bible in our lives, yes. And if your experience doesn't line up with Scripture, do you know what the problem is? It's your experience that's at fault, not the Word of God. The Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And here in this passage, Jacob receives an infallible, inerrant Word from God. And it's God's word that properly interprets his experience. As we see in verse 11, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God says to Jacob, says, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. And then the angel of God says, lift up your eyes and see. And he sees what's taking place here. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. What he sees essentially are the gates that the goats who are mating are the goats that belong to Jacob. Jacob is not stolen from Laban. In fact, the goats that were his are the goats that are bringing forth the offspring. And while this dream is a little obscure to us today, we can see the angel of God is interpreting what was taking place, what has taken place in Jacob's lives, in his life. He saw the flocks increasing because God gave the increase. God caused the flocks to bring forth the abnormally colored livestock, the ones that were Jacob's wages. 
And to solidify it, at the end of verse 12, he says, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. At this point, it's God who is speaking. Whether God was speaking initially or whether he was speaking through this angel, at this point, God is speaking and he's telling Laban, I'm telling Jacob, I've seen how Laban has been treating you. That is why this is taking place. That is why the, the, the flock that belongs to you are the ones that are breeding here because Laban has been mistreating him here. Laban has been trying to fight against him, taking advantage of him here. But God told him, remember, I will be with you. I will bless you. And so God is the one who caused Jacob's flock to breed, to bring forth the abnormally colored livestock that would belong to him. And as we think about this, how comforting it is. We've, so we've seen this before. How comforting it is to know that God sees and he cares. Well, he does not promise to prosper us in the same way as he prospers Jacob. He does make a promise to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. If God is with us, who can be against us? As we read earlier in Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And that's the comfort that Jacob receives here. I mean, he's probably a little bit worried. We'll see, he actually is. He's a little bit worried about what Laban and his sons might do to him. He's prospered. They're envious of his prosperity. But as we're reminded here, it's God who prospered him. As one commentator writes, Jacob did not dupe Laban out of his flocks by magic or trickery. Had he done so, Leah and Rachel might have been sympathetic toward Laban. Rather, God is responsible for Jacob's prosperity. So after seeing this dream, after hearing of God's providential dealings with him, Jacob will hear these words. God says in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. If you remember, Genesis 28, it was at Bethel when God first spoke to Jacob. This is on his way to see Laban. This was the last time he spoke to Jacob, 20 years ago. So he's there and Jacob makes a vow to, pro, to return to the promised land. And he worshiped God there. And God reminds Jacob of those events. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed this pillar and made a vow to me. Jacob took up his stone. Remember we talked about it. I don't know, but it was the best pillow, but he was sleeping with his head on a, a stone. But he takes the stone. He sets it up as a, as a, as a monument, as a pillar. And he makes a vow. That was the first time in Jacob's life that we saw him as a God-fearing man. He worshiped God and he vowed to follow God. And here God is reminding Jacob of that vow. And that vow was grounded in God bringing him back to the promised land. And now God is calling him saying, leave, go back to your kindred, go back to your home. And that brings us to the end of Jacob's report 
to his wives. And then his wives, they're going to respond to him in verses 14 through 16. They begin by asking two questions. In verse 14, they ask, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? And then the next question, are we not regarded by him as foreigners? So their first question is concerned with their inheritance. They recognize there's no share, no allotment for them. Their second question has to do with their relationship to their father. So he's not left an inheritance for them, and he regards them as outsiders now that they've been married off to Jacob. And to, comf- to further their complaint in the end of verse 15, for he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. So Leah and Rachel, they feel neglected by their father for the way that he's treated them with Jacob. He basically sold them to Jacob for 14 years of service. He took the dowry, the, the bride price, and he kept it for himself. The dowry would have been, in, in this culture, would have been held in escrow, so to speak, in case the husband, in case he dies or he divorces his wife. It would have been placed aside for the woman in the event that such a tragedy took place, similar to how we view life insurance today. But these women are accusing their father of using the money for himself. Rather than set apart tangible assets accrued from Jacob's labor, they view Laban's transaction with Jacob as a sell of property. That doesn't mean that Jacob views them as property that he's bought, but that's how they perceive their relationship now with their father. They accuse him of viewing them as property, not as daughters. Therefore, they understand God's work here to prosper Jacob as God giving to them what is rightly theirs. Look at verse 16. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. And because of how their father has treated them and because of God's work to increase Jacob's wealth, they say at the end of verse 16, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So what they're saying here, they're with Jacob. They're not resistant to Jacob's desire to leave. They recognize that God has commanded Jacob to leave. They'll not stand in his way. In fact, they'll submit to his leadership here. And that's what we see in this last section. In verses 17 through 21, we'll see the family submitting to Jacob and going with him as they pack up and head to Canaan. In verse 17, Jacob wastes no time Look, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. It's worth mentioning here that Jacob does not delay in his obedience. He does not hesitate in his obedience. He gets his family ready. And as we see in verse 18, he takes up his possessions and he heads to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. It's time to go home. God's called Jacob to go home. Time to go back to his father's land. Time to go back to the land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to his descendants. He's been here 20 years. It's time to go home. So Jacob leaves. He arises, sets his sons and wives on their camels, drives away his flock, his possessions. So he leaves as God said. But ironically, he doesn't do so in a godly manner. Remember back in verse 1, we saw that Laban's sons, they, they're resentful of Jacob. In verse 2 and in verse 5, we saw that Laban, 
no longer views Jacob with favor. So instead of merely departing from Padan Aram, Jacob takes flight. He flees without telling Laban. I mean, imagine being with your father-in-law for 20 years, and then you just up and leave when he goes to the store, when he goes to work. It's essentially what Jacob does. In verse 19, we read that Laban had gone to shear his sheep. So that's not meant to be understood that he just went out back to shear a sheep or two. This was actually a pretty big deal. Shepherds would gather at a central location where the wool would be processed and woven into cloth. And to mark the end of their work, they would hold a a celebration, a feast. So Laban has actually left to go shear his sheep. And while he's gone, Rachel takes advantage of this opportunity in verse 19, and she steals her father's household gods. We don't know why she steals these household gods. Maybe she's holding on to her former way of life and worshiping idols. Maybe these household gods are valuable to Laban, and she takes them to spite him. We don't know her motives here, but we see her stealing from her father. And after we learn of her theft, we read in verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. So instead of telling Laban of his intent, he just gets up and leaves. His intention to leave is good. He's following God's command. Yet he does so in an ungodly manner. He's fleeing from conflict. He doesn't want to face Laban, so he tricks him and flees. Now we might say, yeah, Laban probably would have done all he could to to keep him there. And he probably would have, probably would have tried to trick him again. But that doesn't matter. Jacob tricked him. And as we see in verse 21, he fled with all that he had. And he arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So he fled from his father-in-law. He takes Laban's daughters and his grandchildren and he takes off. Laban, sure, he's a trickster, he's a deceiver. But Jacob still could have told him he was seeking to leave. However, Jacob sought to avoid conflict. So he flees from Laban. As we're going to see in two weeks, Jacob's not going to be able to avoid conflict with Laban. After Laban finds out, he's going to take off and hightail it and track him down and confront him. In a very intense exchange, but as we will see, God protects Jacob from Laban. No harm will be done to him because God is with him. So that brings us to the end of our passage in which we see Jacob's motives for leaving. Jacob's in-laws, they're beginning to turn on him, but plus we see God calling him to leave. It was God's will for him to head home. It always has been. We also have seen Jacob's dialogue with his wives. He told them about God's revelation and the command to go home. And then we see Jacob's obedience. He follows God's command, yet he does so in an ungodly way. He left Laban in a deceitful way. And from this passage, we've been reminded that it's a great blessing to have the full revelation of God. We've also been reminded that Scripture is the only proper interpreter of experience. And now as we conclude, I want to draw a a contrast between Jacob and Jesus Christ. 
At the conclusion of our passage, we see Jacob taking flight from Laban. While Jacob obeys God, we see that he flees from Laban. As with Esau, he fled to spare his life, to preserve his life. And now things are getting tough in Padan Aram, and he flees. My intent is not to draw any moral implications here from the life of Jacob, but rather to acknowledge Jacob, his flight in the midst of trial, and to acknowledge our need for Christ. Just think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was sent by his Father to seek and to save the lost, and things got very difficult for him. There were times of extreme difficulty. Just go read through the Gospels. He endured much suffering. It got so tough <laughs> tough for him that he was sweating drops of blood. I mean, just imagine if Christ would have fled when times got tough. Imagine if he hightailed it out of town and said, enough is enough. I've got to save my own life. Imagine when he prayed, take this cup from me, if he decided, you know what, it's yours. I'm not going to bear that cup. But this is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He did not take flight. Instead, he endured the cross. He died a sinner's death. He died for the sins of men and women like Jacob. He died for those of us who don't want to face conflict. He died that we might die to sin and that we might find freedom in him, that we might find life in him. And now in him, we can face our tormentors. We can face our enemies because he is our God and he is with us. His shed blood secured our redemption, secured our place in him. And now we can have great confidence in Christ. When we sing that song, and can it be? I didn't sing, I was preserving my voice. It was great to hear the voices sing. But you didn't say it, and can it be? Really, is it true? You're saying, I marvel at the fact that it's true that I have an interest in the Savior's blood. There's great confidence in that. That confidence comes because he poured out his blood. He died for us, not because of something you've done, but because he has done what you could not do. Every single one of us would have given up if we were in his shoes. We would have given up when times got tough. We could not endure our own sins. We can't bear the price for our own sins, much less the sins of others. But he stayed the course. He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. So I call everyone here to look to him. Look to Christ, whether you're in Christ or not, look to him. I realize every single week, I essentially say, Tommy and I, we essentially say the same thing. But what greater comfort is there in life and death than the one whom we have offended, calling us to find our rest in him. He calls us to come to him. He will make us lie down in green pastures. He will lead us to still waters. It's not because our circumstances will necessarily change or ease, 
but because in him we find rest for our souls. And what greater comfort is there than this, that Christ died for us, that he did not flee when times got tough. He conquered sin and death, and in him we too will conquer sin and death. And whereas Jacob could only take his family to the earthly promised land, Christ will take us to the eternal city, which was promised long ago. Because Christ did not flee when temptation came, because he did not flee in the face of suffering and persecution, he's able to take us to our heavenly father where we will find eternal rest. Look to him. Trust in him and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Oh, great God and heavenly father, we're grateful that we have the whole counsel. Because if we read just about, if all we had was the first 31 chapters of Genesis, we might give up. We might think, okay, yeah, you're with him, you cared for him, but what about us? But yet we have your word, which endures flower fades, the grass withers, but yet your word stands and endures forever. And we have your promises that in Christ our lives are secure. Oh, that we might trust in Christ and have great confidence in him and that we might proclaim that glory that you have shown to us, to others. I pray that we would praise your name, that our lives would be lived to the praise of Christ's glory, and that now as we sing one more song, I pray that we would look forward to that day that we spend with you for all eternity. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.